I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And good morning once again. Welcome to another edition of I-94, taped live, as always, at Studio B at the Co-Prosperity Sphere. My name is Jamie Trecker. I am joined with Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. Mr. Michael Sack is off today. He's on paternity leave. We'll expect him back, oh, when, I don't know, a couple harvest moons, maybe? Perhaps. 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 Best, uh, best wishes to Mike and Alyssa. Absolutely. We have with us today on the phone uh, the editor, and it, this is a, a, a real... Uh, treat for me, frankly, because I'm a huge fan of this line. He is the editor of the New York Review of Books Classics line, Mr. Edwin Frank. Edwin, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Yeah, hi. Edwin, where, where are we talking to you from? Uh, I'm actually in Arlington, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. Oh, that's very nice. Are you a Bruins fan by any chance? I'm visiting friends up here. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, catch, catch a Stanley Cup game if you can. Thanks for having us, and uh, thanks for... Uh, uh, being on the show while you're on vacations. No, 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 no problem. My pleasure. So, Edwin, we'd like to start at the beginning. Um, you, you have a, a seminal role in the New York Review of Books, and I'm, we should back up for a second and note that this is the publishing arm of the magazine, the New York Review of Books, as well, which is a long-running magazine starting in the 1960s out of New York City that covers uh, literature, the intelligentsia, and and much more. Uh, it's a vital publication, especially in these times. But you host uh, their reprint and, I believe, some original books line. Uh, and this really, in a sense, was a, was a brainchild of yours. I understand you came up with this when you were working at a, a subsidiary of the New York of Books with the Reader's Catalog. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how the Classics line came to be? Yeah, well, the Reader's Catalog was uh, a venture of Jason Epstein's. Jason Epstein had been an editor, was an editor for many years at uh, Random House, in some sense invented the trade paperback for the American market in the uh, beginning of the 50s. Um, influential editor, and um, the Reader's Catalog was a venture that he started up in the late 80s as independent bookstores began to fold across the country and it became harder and harder to buy books. Um, and what it was going to be was, in effect, a Sears catalog, a bookstore as the Sears catalog as a bookstore. It was supposed to contain, or it was supposed to give you access to the 40,000 best books in print. Um, which you could then order from the reader's catalog as well. And I got involved in the mid-90s uh, when it was going into a second edition. Um, it was a big, it was a, a sort of a fun book in its own right to, to browse around in. I actually was the other day in a, a used bookstore in, in Massachusetts and noticed, noticed an old used copy of the second edition of the reader's catalog there. Uh, because it was divided up by, by genre and divided up some extent by period, and it had um, some minimal annotation, but annotation that gave you some sense of the character of the books, an annotation that had some character in its own right. It, it was, you know, it, was, it made it browsable and readable at the same time. It's a good way to waste time. Um, and uh, this is the catalog itself sold rather well, and there was reason to do a second one in the mid '90s. But of course, that was just at the, uh, you know, just at the threshold of the emergence of Amazon and online purchasing and so on. So in a way, the 
second edition of the Reader's Catalog was the last gasp of, of a certain kind of uh, print commercial culture. Um, and anyway, I was I was enrolled to uh, I was a freelancer and I was reading through sections with and tasked to say where's this great book that should be here or why is this lousy book here and uh, let's get it out. Uh, and the reason that a lot of the great books that should be there weren't there was that they were out of print. And that made me think, uh, I had spent years in uh, graduate school, so the reason why books were out of print was I assumed it had to be some conspiracy of the uh, of, uh, of Yahoo's, but of course the main reason was that uh, they don't sell anything. Um, but uh, um, there were other reasons for that. Anyway, I had the idea of, of putting together a list of uh, such books and making them newly available because they really were great books, and in fact, um, like all great books, pretty enjoyable too. That leads me to the next question, Edwin, and Jamie and I were discussing this. So a lot of your books are in translation. How do you decide what books you guys are going to publish? Um, I, I know you can't speak all the languages, we did, you know, you talked about the catalog and, and books being out of print, but your, your output is absolutely outstanding. And, and a lot of, you know, I, I rarely have picked up a New York Review Books classic that I didn't like. So how do you guys, um, is there a, a team that decides on things? Do you get submissions from people all over the world? Can you explain it to us and our listeners? Sure. Um, actually, I do. I do read and speak French, and actually, and also can read basically in, in Italian and Spanish as well. So, there is. I mean, there are other languages by which I can read books if they happen to have been translated into one of those other languages. Um, but um, well, I mean, the the answer I like to give to that question is rigorously by whim. Uh, so you the, throw them down the, the stairs, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, from the beginning, I mean, my idea of uh, the series was that it be um, that it mix things up, mix up different kinds of genres, mix up times. By no means be a classics list. I mean, I, I, I've always thought that the title classics posed problems uh, in the sense that it was the books that you got in class. Uh, but rather a whole range of books that made you rethink what a good book could be um, was really what I had in mind. And, and with a good book, I suppose, in some sense, the notion of a, of a lasting book. or Though those, you know, um, lasting books are sometimes books that at one point weren't really readable, but at this point suddenly are, are, are surprisingly to the point. So what lasts may, may uh, resurface and go under and resurface again. Um, otherwise, I mean, mixing up two in the sense of mixing up languages, as I said to begin with, we began uh, by reprinting now, I would say that uh, at least a third of the books we do are actually new to the English language uh, or are new as compilations of material that have never previously appeared, um, perhaps close to half. I've never actually really uh, toted up the, not figured up the numbers. Um, and, you know, we have, uh, well, I mean, a variety of things we do, a small, I, I think of the series as being uh, composed of, 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 in some sense, various strands or threads, and uh, there are different languages, there are several languages that we've uh, translated from uh, fairly intensively, one is, uh, or published translations from fairly intensively, one is Italian, French, German more recently, we've delved into Hungarian, there was a period when 
it seemed like you would have a season that was nothing but Hungarian books, which isn't good for either the publishing house or the Hungarian books, but we managed to mix things up again. Um, there are authors that we're quite committed to, Victor Serge, Andrei Platonov, Vasily Grossman, J.G. Farrell, uh, Eileen Chang. Um, these are all writers who, who, uh, mean, who I think are to some extent, have been underestimated and actually are, are really important figures. Um, there is uh, a small strand of science fiction. There's a small strand of horror. And these, these can be, you know, added on to as you go along. And then also you can swerve and take on something new. Um, so it's, in some sense, um, a kind of a game, in a certain way, a kind of game of, of, of a game which allows you to find out other things and and uh, and and uh, share share those discoveries. We do get lots of recommendations. I mean, we do ask people to send in recommendations, and people do send in recommendations, and um, those have led us to some wonderful things. Um, equally, you know, we hear uh, we haunt used bookstores. We hear from translators. We hear from agents. Um, a whole mix of different sources, you know, like a good, like a good spy agency. We have to uh, <laughs> keep our ears open. So that that brings up another a number of questions actually from me, and I want to put a pin on Eileen Chang. We're going to talk a little bit more about her later. We actually have a prepared reading uh, from her book uh, as well. I know, I believe she's one of your favorite authors, but I, I wanted to back up because you mentioned French, and I, I have to assume just because of some of the books you're putting out, and I'm thinking of uh, Jean Patrick Manchette and, and George Simenon, that you you must be a fan of detective literature because you're putting out some extremely high quality and esoteric French crime fiction and and Belgian crime fiction, which is is very unusual in the American marketplace. And for our listeners, I do, I do uh, we, we also have a reading from Manchette, but I do urge people to search it out. Are, are you a fan of this stuff, and did you read it in the in the original French? Yeah, no, I read the uh, I read the Manchette, the original French, and the uh, Simonon was slightly different in that we were publishing the the what were called the Roman Dure or the hard novels, which are crime fiction, but not strictly, well, they're different from the, uh, the Maigret fiction, that they don't involve a detective. I'm not a big fan of, of, of fiction with solutions. Um, I love the kind of organized, um, gleeful mayhem that Manchette sets off, and uh, I remember reading that book, um, well, actually, I was in France with my, my then 13-year-old son or something like that, and uh, his 12-year-old cousin traveling around, and I just started telling them the totally over-the-top story of that book, and, uh, and both of them sort of after a said, and what happens next? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we actually have a, this might be a good point, we actually have a reading from that. Why don't we play that real quickly? We'll, we'll pause for about three minutes. As always, our readings are done by Shanna Van Volt. Today, as always, they're, they're also music provided by the International uh, Anthem Recording Company. But this is uh, Jamie Branch, the trumpeter, with her side project, Antiloper. This is a, a selection from uh, Jean-Patrick Manchette's uh, The Mad and the Bad, so you can get kind of a, a sense of what Edwin's talking about here. And we'll be right back with Edwin live after this little pause. Julie was dazed. Her head, her eyes were in a fog. When a gap in the crowd opened up, she bound through it, tugging Peter along behind her. The little boy was stupefied with terror. Over the hatted heads, a clear space could be seen. Julie turned to look back. Amid the crush, she spotted Thompson getting nearer with great long strides. A tall silhouette, thin and dried up and gray hair. If he got a clear shot, he would be able to pot the girl like a target at a fairground shooting gallery. From a hundred meters, Julie could make out the man's teeth gleaming in his lined face. 
She raced straight towards a prusinic fronting the street and entered through the glass door. She charged down the aisles. The store occupied the ground floor level of an entire block. Beyond the vast accumulation of commodities, more glass doors opened onto another street in an esplanade black with people. Julie charged in that direction. She must get out ahead of Thompson, melt into the crowd. She jostled housewives as she passed. The girl was no more than a few meters from the exit doors when Coco materialized on the other side of the glass. Blinking, he looked at Julie, who had pulled up short. He seemed hesitant, almost fearful. Julie made an about turn, twisting Peter's arm. The boy began to cry. Oh, shut up, shut up, cried Julie. It's over. She rushed up to a sales girl. Mademoiselle, call the police right away. What? The police, call the police. But what's going on? Demanded the sales girl, taking a step back. She scrutinized Julie with a suspicious smile tugging on her lips. 20 meters away, Coco came in through the glass doors. Suddenly, he dashed forward. Julie whirled round. Tableware was on display close by, and she swept a pile of unbreakable plates onto the floor. They did not break. You're crazy, exclaimed the salesgirl, taking another leap backwards. Murderer, yelled Julie with all her might. Pirouetting once more, she slapped the salesgirl violently across the face and set off at a run. She never let go of Peter, who lost his balance and fell forward still firmly in Julie's grasp. She did not release him, hauling him along at top speed, his feet dragging on the tile floor. He was bawling at the top of his lungs. At the other end of the pursuit, Thompson had entered the store and stood motionless, his pistol dangling at the end of his arm, barrel pointing towards the floor. Murderer! yelled Julie again, heightening the skepticism of the housewives. She kept running, zigzagging among the shelves. As she proceeded, she grabbed products and threw them on the floor. A store employee with a badge on his white cashier's smock suddenly posted himself in her way, legs and arms spread like a goalie. Stop right there, he commanded in a measured tone. Julie delivered a head blow to his face. The girl's hard skull struck the man's chin, snapping his head back and causing him to collapse into a heap on the tiled floor. Julie leapt over him. He grabbed Peter and held on. Julie grabbed a stainless steel paring knife from the display and stabbed at the air above the head of the department manager. He immediately let go of Peter and curled into a ball, using his elbows to protect his eyes and his knees to protect his genitals. Police! He cried in a falsetto voice. About time, too, said Julie, and a bullet passed through her right arm. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that is the more hard-boiled than, than Jim Thompson. Jean-Patrick Manchette from his book, The Mad and the Bad, out now on New York Review Classics. I can tell you our, our reader had a lot of fun with that one. Um, I, Edwin, I, I have to say I'm, I'm actually a, a big fan of, of Manchette, and uh, this this stuff strikes me as as so um, otherworldly. I, I happen to be a huge fan of detective fiction. Uh, my mother actually writes detective fiction for a living as well, so I, I guess I come by it honestly. But this is, is very um, weird stuff, and I wondered if you could speak a little bit about how um, – what I think people might think of as a genre novel fits into kind of your overall publishing plan because your your books definitely have a pretty hard literary bent, and yet you do put out stuff uh, like The Rim of Morning. You do put out stuff um, like Chalky, uh, the John Wyndham books, which are all kind of classic genre fiction. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that kind of fits into to the idea of what the NRYB is about. Well, um, as I said before, I think that, that part of the point of a good, uh, of, well, what a good book does is make you think, is give you pleasure and give you a sense of, of, of amazement, of astonishment, if you will, but also uh, sort of expands your sense of, of, of what a book can be. Um, 
And I think genre fiction has been as caught up in, in expanding the boundaries of, of the imagination in many ways more so than literary fiction. I mean, genre fiction can go strange places and it can do, um, I mean, in ways it's sometimes seen as being less stylistically polished, um, though curiously, if you take something like Rim of Morning, um, and I'm now my, uh, the horror movie, the horror, sorry, the horror story, I mean, there you see the, the limit of that book in some sense is that its style is really quite conventional, even as the material in it is, is um, deeply strange and unsettling. But Manchette has a... Um, Manchette is really uh, streamlined and stripped down and, and hard-boiled, as we were saying, though, uh, with a kind of political edge. There's the... Um, I wasn't actually... I could, it was very difficult for me to make out anything except that that sounded like a great combination of music and text. <laughs> Uh, on my, on my uh, so and I was trying to figure out what scene from the uh, the book it is. So I, it may have been. I don't think it was the scene where there's a shootout in the in the supermarket. That that it's the shootout in the uh, uh, Julia's shot while she's trying to drag Peter through the uh, clothing store and uh, she uh, uh, kicks one of the security ju- uh, guards where it uh, is very seriously hurts. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I mean, he is he is. In, in interesting ways, caught up with sort of with with the limits of consumerist culture, which are you know where everything seems. Um, this is true of the other book we published of his, Fatal, uh, where everything seems tidy and fixed up, but there's a kind of underlying violence to the society, or an underlying oppression of possibility, or an underlying ex- exploitation, which then um, erupts in his pages. In and he does it with a, we said hard-boiled, but there's something that's almost the quality of ballet, the way in which he synchronizes these scenes. And um, uh, and so there's a way which I think you, you see the world around you in a new after finishing um, one of his books. I think for me, Manchette was always, uh, his themes remind me a lot of Ballard, G.G. Ballard, not the style or the, the storytelling, but the um, the themes. But there was, you know, you mentioned something earlier about classics and I was going to mention, I, I work for Chicago Public Library, and we used to have classic stickers for books, and then there was a, a conversation about what is a classic and what is classic to who, and um, and we actually have done away with them, and I just want to mention that. But I also want to mention uh, with genre fiction, you know, genre fiction gets a bad rap these days. I think people like to put, uh, you know, I only read literary fiction, or I only read this, or I only read that, but, you know, a lot of, and what I think is interesting, and a lot of your books, even prior to all the genre kind of crossovers, there's not, what you said, a lot of them, there's no answers, and also, there's a sense of uh, foreboding underneath, or weirdness, they're not what I would call a classic genre that, like, you know, you're going to be bestsellers or fly off the shelves at the library. This is, you know, they're kind of like literary genre, if that's a, a term. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, they have qualities that I at least value in, in, in what seems to me uh, good, great literature, good books, what, 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 which is that, yeah, they, they unsettle you and they startle you. Um, and they do it, I mean, ideally a book will do that at two levels. It will do it in terms of how you see uh, well, it could be any number, how you see life, how you see yourself, how you see the world, but it also does it in the way that you see how a book can make you see the world. It does it formally as well, and that can happen in terms of plots that you've never imagined uh, or whatever. But, you know, if you look at the history of, of uh, literature in the last century, somebody like H.G. Wells is one of the great visionaries of 
of 20th century literature and and a kind of mythology of of um, which we come back to at all sorts of different levels of of, of, uh, of imaginative execution of I mean, it wasn't Wells who comes up with, with Dracula, but it's in the same decade of the 1890s that Wells comes up with the time machine, and so on, Dracula comes out, and what you will. This stuff is, I mean, the modern world wouldn't exist without it, for better or for worse. Yeah, and I mean, your, your science fiction list, I mean, um, I, just, I happen to have it pulled up. It, it's, very, uh, it's very British, uh, which, is, which is interesting to me, because you've got books like Compton's The Continuous, Catherine Mortenhoe, which we've covered in this show, and is, is a very interesting book if people have not picked it up. Uh, Christopher Priest's really quite brilliant and tricky inverted world. Um, the Chrysalids, we mentioned uh, John Wyndham before. And, I had never uh, heard of Wyndham, and I had read a couple of those Well, Day books. of the Triffids, of course, yeah. And yeah, and that, I, I was never a huge science fiction fan. I do, however, love H.G. Wells. And um, I, I guess the other thing is, you know, what— being a librarian and what we think of conventional genres is a little different now than I think it was in the 1890s. And that's, I think, what I was trying to get at earlier. Yeah. Well, and there are, of course, I mean, there are books that sort of like jelly beans, you can pop them into your mouth one after another, and maybe <laughs> they give you a little, you know, a little jolt of horror, but it's still, it's a sort of little jolt rather than anything that is, it's, it's exactly what you expected rather than yeah. anything unexpected. And that, that is the uninteresting side of books. And can be an uninteresting feature of literary books as well. I mean, that, or what you know, this notion of literary fiction as itself a kind of genre is uh, is a, I mean, is is threatens that kind of writing to become standardized too. And and of course, any kind of any kind of writing, any kind of magic production is subject to standardization at a certain point. But that, um, um, but I mean, I don't. We want to sort of shake the standards. I think you do, and that was my point. You know, I like when we think of contemporary genre. You know, the first thing that pops in my head is like James Patterson or Daniel Steele or something. Just being a librarian, yeah, or Stephen King. Yeah, Stephen King. I actually love Stephen King's early work, but the um, not big fan of his newer stuff. But that's what that's what I was kind of getting at. You guys do a very good job of uh, rocking the boat and and turning people onto stuff that they would never be able to to read in the past. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk to you. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I wanted to ask you, we, we actually have to go to break in, in just a couple minutes here, but one of the things also that is very distinctive about you guys is your design. Uh, it reminds me very much, I mean, you guys have a, a real brand. If you if you see one of your books on the shelf, you know it's a New York Review of Books books. You have the kind of centerpiece, the, the typeface is all the same. It reminds me, I'm assuming this is a very conscious decision on your part, but it reminds me very much of how I used to identify the old uh, Penguins and Puffin books. You know, when you saw those on the shelves, you knew it was this and it, it gave you a certain sense, uh, uh, there was a certain currency, there, a certain quality that was implied with that. Who, who's responsible for that design, and how did, how did that come about? Well, um, we did want to have a design like that, and when we started the, uh, this, the book series in the late, uh, in 99, uh, one of the things that puzzled me as a, an inveterate reader, but not somebody who'd been in publishing, was the, the disappearance, with the exception of Penguin. Uh, of those to, of, of series that had that kind of recognizability and that sort of um, uh, helped helped you find your way into the kind of larger labyrinth of, of, of literature. Um, we had a, a design before this design which uh, was not so successful, and actually, like all such, like many things, um, it, it happened. It was, it was a bit of an emergency for various reasons. That design uh, proved no longer uh, viable and. Um, 
we went, we, need, we had books to get out by that time, and we went to Katie Homans, who came up with the template that uh, we use to this day. Um, when it comes to choosing the art, uh, I and my, my, um, my co-editor, uh, Sarah Kramer, uh, people who, I mean, at that point, we'd need to get the books out. Katie said, I can't choose the art, and I'd spent many years not getting a PhD in art history, and I thought that should be good <laughs> for something. Um, and so we, uh, Sarah and I basically do the, the pick the art, uh, the design, I think, you know, works to look both, I mean, the books are recognizable. They look because the, the colors on the spines vary. They also look like they look diverse. Um, so there's unity and variety at the same time, those classic qualities. And um, it always amazes me. It, it is not the world's most practical design because having the, the little cartouche with the text there right in the middle of the cover means that if you wanted to get away with the easy thing of putting a portrait of the author or something like that on the front, you can't do that because it just the, the text block just covers up covers up the center of the picture. Uh, though in one case we did actually use that in a uh, use that to, as a gimmick. Basically. You did. You used that for the the French um, author whose name's escaping me, but he did the very short stories. Am I correct? Uh, we did it for it was Albert Cossary, a book called The Jokers, which is oh, about yeah, a right yeah. of course, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's a Jewish about right? a postering campaign against a dictator. So we took a picture of the older Assad, and we had him post, you know, papered over as if that were a poster of the kinds of posters they were doing in the book. Did you read about a while back, Edwin, with the, the design nerds uh, filling their bookshelves with New York reviews by color coding them? That there was a, some articles floating around the literary press for a while about that a few years back. I did see some of that stuff, yeah. yeah. And Kossary, Kossary, I, I he's... Not something, not something I had thought about myself. <laughs> I, I, can, I, I know. It's, it, I, when, I, when I read that, I was like chuckling to myself. I'm like, why don't you just buy them and read them? But that, that's yeah. me. So. Well, I mean, it should be pointed out, you've also had Eve Babbitts, who is a delectable uh, model on your covers as well. We should point that out. Yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> Um, we are going to take a quick break, and, and uh, when we come back, actually, we're going to come back into a reading um, from uh, Wolf, Wolfgang Herrendorf, I believe, his book Sand, which is really interesting, another uh, more recent book from you guys. Edwin, are you willing to stick around with us for another half hour of this? Sure. Beautiful. Like Beautiful. So we're going to be right back. We are speaking with Edwin Frank. You are listening to I-94 right here on Lumpen Radio. This is some uh, stuff from the folks that make the station possible, and we'll be back in a few minutes. <laughs> If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. Kenesad switched on the TV, put his feet up on the desk, and stared for a long time at the black screen. The picture tube began to crackle as snowy analog clock appeared. It was two minutes to six. Hanasads had spent the afternoon at the hospital trying to question the presumed victim of a mass rape and was too tired to start the interview now. He also might as well have just skipped it. Three cousins of the victim had kept a bedside watch and made sure he was never able to see the girl. Only through the intervention of a female doctor had it been possible to conduct an interview through an improvised white curtain. The result was as unspectacular as it was predictable. No rape, just a fall down the stairs. Canisades had to have the doctor describe the nature of the injuries, the location of the hematomas, the hair pulled out by the bushel, and the lacerations. He established the names of the cousins, two of whom would be charged with the rape, and who took their leave of him impassively, almost cheerfully. The complaint had been filed by the 11-year-old sister of the victim, who had seen the whole thing through a window and ran to the police. 
where she had the misfortune of encountering an uncorrupt official. Now the girl was sitting somewhere in the central commissariat, a straw doll in Target's only female lawyer at her side, and was probably already beginning to realize that the nicer part of her life was over. You're watching TV? Assis tromped through the room chewing gum, tossed a file onto the desk, scratched his back, and disappeared into the next room. What? Kanasad shouted after him. The file. What am I supposed to do with it? The fingerprints? What fingerprints? On the Mauser. What Mauser? Are you stupid? The sentencing was this morning. Nothing happened for a full five seconds. Then Assis's upper body leaned back into the room. He had stopped chewing. Don't call me stupid. I'm just doing my job. I spent hours lifting prints off that Mauser. Don't leave me notes in my locker if you don't want the results. He disappeared again. One could hear a door open in the next room. Polidorio, or uh, who was it? Canisades called after him. How should I know? So what are the results? Yeah, what indeed. You idiots, if I spent hours, the rest couldn't be heard. One minute before six, dramatic string music started up. Canisades leaned toward the file, but with his feet on the desk in front of him, he couldn't reach it. The music stopped, the camera zoomed out, and the snowy analog clock became part of a news studio. A very young, handsome man was sitting behind a teak table upon which, in perfect symmetry, sat a flower arrangement, a condenser microphone, and a black telephone. The young man greeted the viewers in Arabic and French and then read the reports in French only. A parade had been held in honor of the king's 64th birthday. There were men in white uniforms atop great white steeds, footmen in white togas decorated with peacock feathers. A high-ranking officer was appointed a provincial governor. A school had burned down. The newsreader read gravely, unctuously. As an image of a woman in a hijab standing in front of the blackened, writhing bodies of children appeared behind him, his voice cracked. With a suppressed sob, he ducked under the table, blew his nose, and then, after a suitable pause, read the output figures for the recently developed phosphorus mines in the north. In addition, one saw a woman in tight shorts with both legs stretched out horizontally in front of her, beneath her a sandpit, behind her a track, Heidi Rosendahl. The speaker faltered briefly, and a clip showed a man with a white beach hat on his head and shoe polish on his face talking to a group of people in suits. Other men in track suits conducted exercises with machine guns on flat roofs of the Olympic Village. The Palestinian people struggled for freedom would. The Munich police commissioner had all hostages were. Subsequently, an interview of several minutes with a religious dignitary who astutely analyzed the situation. Kanasads had folded both hands behind his head opened his mouth wide and was moving his jaw back and forth with a cracking sound. Then he took his legs down from the desk and grabbed the file. The A4 sheet of paper with the fingerprints was sitting on top. Standard text, beneath that two square spaces, each with a doughy print in the middle. Target, said the newsreader. Canisades looked up. The screen showed a picture of a white delivery van with grates over the window that had been rammed up against a wall by a 12-ton truck and burst open like a tin can. Amadou Amadou, sentenced to death in the morning for multiple homicide, had been sprung from custody during his transfer to the site of the execution. Turning to the photo, the newsreader indicated with both arms to the intersecting directions of the two vehicles, explained the circumstances of the accident, and closed with a quote from the police general, who in turn stated that the escaped prisoner would be back in custody shortly and wished that Allah grant peace upon his soul because man would not. He stacked the pile of papers on the desk in front of him and cleared his throat. The camera zoomed back on the analog clock. It was quarter past six. Kanasaz contemplated the squares. A right thumb from the weapon, clearly visible, and Amadou's right thumb, taken 10 days ago at the station house. Identical. 
Hey, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to I-94 right here on WLPN, Chicago 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio. My name's Jamie Trecker. I'm joined, of course, by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. That was a selection from Wolfgang Herrendorf's Sand. It is a book out now from the New York Review of Books Classics line. We've been speaking with Edwin Frank, and we're going to get Edwin back in just a second here. Edwin, that strikes me as kind of a quintessential New York Review of Books title. It's atmospheric, it's mysterious, it was written by a German author uh, about a place nowhere near Germany, and it has a rather remarkable central twist that I I will not spoil, even though I believe the novel itself is probably 30 or 40 years old right now, but it it genuinely has a very stunning central device that uh, turns it from what could be a a remarkably well-written book into an outstanding example of the genre. Yeah, well, it's got, I mean, it's a tour de force of of plotting. I mean, almost so intricate. Well, a certain number of reviewers just failed to get it altogether. But uh, you, and um, uh, and it's um, composed of all sorts of short, um, sometimes humorous, sometimes hard-hitting chapters, almost like a mosaic. And to see the, and it's, it's the basic story of the man who is, Trying to who's lost his memory and trying to figure out who he is, and um, uh, and is in North Africa in the early 1970s, and um, he's being taken for several rides at once. <laughs> Reader is as well. That's um, actually it's a book. It's only really about uh, uh, ten years old. Um, Handorf um, Handorf died unfortunately young of of, uh, of cancer. Uh, oh, I was not aware of that. I thought I thought this was a book that was a little more contemporary to when he was writing it. No, no, it was, it's a book from, from our century, and uh, he had written one book, which is an immense, uh, a book which was sort of a young adult book, or, uh, which is called Chick in Germany, I'm not sure what it was translated as here. There it was a huge success, it's almost a kind of capture and ride book, and then he followed up with this very different book, and then in his early 40s he uh, came down with, uh, uh, I don't think, maybe glioblastoma or something like that, and he kept a blog called Work and Structure, um, and finally, finally killed himself. Oh. Uh, he was he, he died in the last decade, and and as I said, it was in his early forties. How did how did this book get on your radar? I mean, obviously, I, I did know that he had a he had a bestseller in Germany, but uh, having a bestseller in Germany doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a uh, an international smash. Uh, was no. the the central plot of this book, as you mentioned, is about a man who's lost his memory? I don't I don't want to give it away, and I must confess, it was about only two thirds of the way through the book that I realized what was going on. So I may have been one of those gormless reviewers you were referring to. Um, but how did this no, I, get? I also was pretty mystified for a while. Oh, okay. Well, I don't feel so bad then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do not feel so bad. If folks, folks, you should pick this book up. I know we're not supposed to make calls to action, but this this is a recommended book, and I, I think you would enjoy it. You could probably find it at your local library here. I know there's a, a librarian here who can probably help you out with that. But this book, how did it get on your radar? Because I do I do really feel that we, we've been talking about a number of books, and I, I, we want to get into Eileen Chang in a moment, but this, this really does seem like the exact kind of books that you guys want to be putting out. Uh, strange, uh, brilliant, uh, but also uh, something that American readers are absolutely not going to be able to find or discover on their own. So how did you discover it? Well, as it happens, my partner is German, and um, she also used to work in publishing. Now she's a writer. Uh, and she was she knew about the other book, and she knew about this blog, which actually got a lot of attention in Germany um, uh, that I was... Um, and so I, the name had got settled there, and then, uh, in this case, actually, I was also, 
an excellent publisher in England, uh, Adam Freudenheim, who's the head of, of, of Pushkin Books, which also distribute books in this country uh, and do some pretty wonderful books. Uh, he he reads German, which I can only do with a great deal of difficulty, and um, and he uh, he was he had decided to take the book on and what with these these um, uh, so I, I decided to go along for the ride and um, it's a case where basically I would say I was it was being recommended by by several people I trust uh, and um, there was some critic criticism to read about it and so you you take a bet. So we're gonna get into uh, Eileen Chang now. I um I had never heard of Eileen before we uh, did preparation for the show, and I actually uh, we had the catalog, and I picked this. I uh, picked Naked Earth to read. Um, and I have to tell you, like the entire time I was reading this book, I was like, "Oh my God, how come no one knows about this person?" And obviously, millions of people know about her in China. She's uh, extraordinarily popular, but her background is actually uh fairly fascinating she uh uh, was married to a japanese sympathizer and and those of you who are unfamiliar with chinese history that's a big no-no and she ended up in taiwan and then ended up uh they called her the chinese greta garbo i've heard her compared to like the chinese jd salinger because she was a complete recluse um at the end of her life in la um and i just when I was reading this, and the, the story is is uh, I, I know a little bit about land reform, and, and because I work with uh, two Chinese Americans that were in China during the Cultural Revolution, and uh, but just I mean the the brutality and the hypocrisy. Uh, it, you know, I, I I did a review of this book, and I. I told people, you know, anybody, next time you see somebody wearing a Mao button, hand them this book because it was just, uh, it, it stunned me. I was floored. Um, there is a uh, uh, an illegal abortion scene that should be read by every pro-lifer in this country. Um, and I just, you know, I, I'm kind of a fanboy of Eileen. Now I'm going to read everything she's written, but I, I you know, I just want to thank you guys for publishing this Um it absolutely blew my mind. Well, this this speaks to me because it, I certainly think of her as being the writer, the the biggest discovery I made as editor of the series, and that I hadn't known her work at all. Um, it uh, and it um, uh, and discovered it in a sense from a, a footnote in a, um, a reference book, which was the Oxford Book of Literature in English translation, where. They referred to Eileen Chang as as a writer who um, not only was she a remarkable writer in uh, her own language, but she had translated her own work into English, and the translations were themselves uh, masterpieces. Um, and that, of course, caught my eye because it's not it's it's not that common uncommon these days for people to write in second language from the one, especially in English, uh, from the one they may have grown up uh, learning. But and using, but um, it, it, back in the day, and Eileen Shang is a writer who began to write in the early forties uh, in China. Uh, it was pretty unusual, and as you said, she had a, a remarkable life. She came from a very um, uh, an old Chinese family, a Mandarin family, and her father was the kind of classically dissolute Mandarin. Um, uh, uh, Gentleman, in that he was an opium addict, he had concubines, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
Her mother, by contrast, was very much a sort of feminist new woman uh, who gave Eileen the English name Eileen. Uh, in China, she's known as Zhang Eileen, um, in order as a kind of gesture towards uh, internationalism, the larger world. And Chang herself grew up, uh, well, when she was a teenager, was actually imprisoned in her father's house by her father, who beat her up. And, uh, and she finally escaped uh, from the house and began, uh, made a kind of impression writing short pieces in Shanghai during the um, Chinese occupation. And those short pieces, the interesting thing, I'm sorry, the Japanese occupation, the interesting thing about those stories in relation to um, Naked Earth in particular is that um, those stories, because of the political situation she was writing under, she said, you know, I, she couldn't write about politics, and politics has been overwhelmingly the concern of, of Chinese literature for much of the 20th century before the revolution, stories based on the work of Maxim Gorky about the, the abuses of the old regime, more recently stories based actually on the work of Maxim Gorky still about the abuses of the revolutionary regime. In a way, uh, Naked Earth is the book that is of Chang's that is most in the mainstream of, of Chinese literature of the 20th century. These other books, though, she and novellas, the ones collected in the book we published, Love in a Fallen City, are, she said, kind of beautifully, she had to write about the little things that happen between men and women. Well, we know that the things that happen between men and women aren't all that little. Um, and she writes within... <laughs> With in uh, with intense uh, insight and uh, skepticism, but also lyricism about uh, the the fraught and unusual nature uh, nature of family life, of romantic life, uh, in these in the in the novellas uh, that she that were published when she was still in her early twenties. Uh, uh, she was also designing clothes at that point, writing very unusual essays, and then. Basically, when the revolution happened, she was condemned to a life of, of really exile thereafter. Um, and um, so, but really a fascinating figure, and who has become in China, in the China, in the larger Chinese diaspora, uh, one of the, um, I think it's recognized really as one of the great figures of Chinese literature and the great originals of Chinese literature in the, in the 20th century. And, you know, you mentioned that the, the, her mother was a feminist. This book... You know the 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 women characters. Um, they're they're obviously oppressed because they're um, you know they're basically minions for the 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 ruling party. However, when you get into their stories, they are uh, very strong women um, in the face of what they're dealing with. And I I think it's I I don't know what the the academic description would be, but it's like subtle feminism. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I mean. There's, you know, there's the love of the main heroes. I, I have to be, I, I can't remember their, the various names, unfortunately, but... Uh, uh, Sue was the... At the beginning, there, I mean, for the listeners, the book begins with two young, bright young kids who are very much supported the revolution, a guy and a girl, who've been sent out on the, to help with the land reform project and are more and more appalled by what's going on, and that, but they fall in love with each other at the same time. Which is illegal. And, yeah. And then he's sent back to work on a newspaper or a kind of propaganda outlet in um, Beijing, I believe. And uh, so they're separated at that point. And then he gets involved in a, another relationship with a, a, a older woman who's part of the part of the newspaper, which is also which is a classic Eileen Chang depiction of male female power dynamics and and um, 
And that becomes the downfall of both of them uh, and is in some sense, well, also has an impact on the relationship uh, with, with the woman who really is in some sense his true love. We, we actually have a quick selection of play from Eileen, but before we do that, I just wondered if you could speak a little bit to the growing um, presence of, of Chinese and Korean and Japanese literature in the American marketplace. Because we've seen this book, obviously, uh, is is very interesting, uh, and she's a very fascinating figure. We've seen The Vegetarian come out. We've seen uh, the science fiction books from Xixuan Liu come out. Is there? Do you think there is a new wave of, of literature from China that will be made available to American audiences, and we're going to have more discoveries like Ms. Chang? Yeah, well, I mean, we are about, we have published one book by a, uh, a writer who is in his 50s, Gosei, who has a um, uh, uh, established reputation in China and who works outside of the genre of um, uh, what I was referring to before, uh, the kind of uh, political fiction, which is also called in, in China scar fiction. Um, and, um, yeah, I do. I mean, I think that, if, frankly, uh, and this expands, uh, this is true of both the Chinese and, as you, you also mentioned, Korean. I mean, these are, are countries who, where prosperity and literacy have, have grown by leaps and bounds, countries where... Uh, there is certainly, compared to what there was, uh, more freedom uh, of, of expression. Uh, there is, it has to be said, that sometimes limited freedom of expression can be stimulating to people's ways of getting things across uh, in ways that they may not be able to, saying things they may not be able to say directly, but, say, but signaling them in other ways, mm-hmm. which can be a stimulus to literary invention. Um, it certainly accounts for a lot of the great Russian literature. Um, so, yes, I mean, I think you, you have all the pieces in place for a real uh, emergence of, of very, very robust uh, new writing. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very eager to see what's coming out of, uh, out of those countries. And, and the Koreans uh, also generously help to uh, provide subventions, as to the Chinese to some extent, um, for uh, publishing and translating that work, because it is a, a sad fact that uh, translation work has a, a tough road to hoe in the United States. Work in translation has a tough road to hoe in, in the United States. It does. Well, we're gonna, let's, let's play a quick segment from Eileen Chang's Naked Earth. I'm going to get back. We're speaking with Edwin Frank. He is the editor of the New York Review of Books Classics line. And this is a selection. Once again, we want to thank our reader, Shannon Van Volt, and we want to thank the band Antelope for providing with the music this week. The two of them sat together in the dark, watching colored lantern slides advertising pills and knitting wool flash on the screen. A girl's voice on the amplifier had just finished giving a news broadcast in two dialects. Now she was telling the audience about the theater's newly installed nursery and drinking fountain and the loan of paper fans free of charge. The ushers went around in their liberation suits, distinguished from the audience by white armbands. Another man with a white armband made his rounds holding up a white enamel basin covered by a steaming gray towel. Five spice mushroom flavored bean curd cakes, he chanted in a steady whisper. The introduction of hot bean curd cakes into movie theaters was another innovation where only popcorn, ice cream, and lemonade could be had before. The man peddling it looked a bit self conscious, even furtive. The dull beanie smell, faintly spicy, filled the auditorium. The chatty voice over the microphone made a tolerable substitute for conversation. Both Liu and Sun Nan were strained in their eyes reading the synopsis of the feature film in the dim light. Both Leo and Sun Nan were straining their eyes reading the synopsis of the feature film in the dim light. There was really no excuse for feeling awkward with each other since this was the fourth time they had been out together since she arrived. 
At first she must have thought it amusing. It seemed they were only accustomed to meet in cramped moments and felt lost when they had whole hours and afternoons to themselves. Then he could see that she was beginning to feel puzzled at his attitude. He was not sure that he understood it himself. The other thing was over and she need never hear of it. After all, it did not matter. It was, it was different with men. But she would not think so. Double standards were a thing of the past and he agreed with her entirely. At least he had always thought he did. He stole a quick look at her lowered profile, clear-cut and pale in the brownish half-light of the auditorium. Her dark blue cotton uniform had faded into a light mauve from much washing. His blue uniform had also become mauve, only it did not suit him as it did her. She wore her hair longer now and absolutely straight, parted in the middle. She looked different from what he remembered, and much more beautiful. His memory had been tempered by common sense and worn out by incessant running. It was like writing the same word 2,000 times until you no longer knew it. It was funny how big of a difference it made when a person was actually there in front of you. It made a bigger difference than it should. As soon as he had seen her, he knew that she had not let anything happen to her. She was just the same as before, if a little hardened by the struggle to say innocent. And she obviously took for granted it was the same with him, except that he must have had an easier time not being a girl. Apparently, she had never seen any need to find out more about him. When she was with him, she was quietly, blissfully absorbed, which frightened him more than inquisitiveness. And that was a reading from Eileen Chang's Naked Earth. It is out now from the New York Review of Books, and we are speaking with the editor of the New York Review of Books classic series, Edwin Frank. Edwin, we, you know, this, this show tends to fly by. Both Jeremy and I could probably talk to you for hours about these titles. Uh, I did want to talk a little bit about, however, before we let you go, some of the stuff that is, is coming out uh, in the next year from you guys. You do have a, a, an extensive list of stuff. One of the things that, uh, that fascinates me is that you guys have dipped into comic books, um, and I know, I, I believe you don't necessarily directly handle that. I believe you have some, some people that do that. But it, it struck me that you've got a very unusual uh, comic book collection out from um, a real forgotten master of the form and a guy named Ogden Whitney who um, – came from the American Comics Group and is known for doing some extremely strange comics, including uh, uh, Herbie, the the fat superhero, um, <laughs> which is a very, very unusual a book that I, I recommend that all connoisseurs of the weird pick up. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into uh, comic books? Yeah, two guys who worked over in the, uh, worked on the magazine, uh, or rather one of, uh, one guy who worked on the magazine who'd been there for a while, who is now the ed- one of the two editors of the magazine, Gabe Winslow Yost. Uh, and uh, Lucas Adams, who had worked in and around uh, the office, came to me with a proposal to um, to do a, a series of, of, of graphic novels, so they prefer to call them comics. Uh, and I think partly because they wanted a range, they wanted to do gag, classic gag comics, they wanted to do a whole range of different things. They didn't want to be limited to the graphic novel. Um, and it seemed like a good idea to me. I mean, I liked the idea. I had done in the classics a book by Dino Bizzotti called Poem Strip, which is basically the tor- story of Orpheus and Eurydice, uh, done in, in, as, a, as a comic book with Orpheus as a, as a rock guitarist, a uh, book that was published in uh, the 60s in, in Italy and that seemed to look forward to uh, graphic novels, to anticipate graphic novels that were to come. And so I was, though not myself a big reader of, of uh, graphic novels, uh, I, liked, um, I liked the idea, and so we started a few years ago. We do about four a year, and they have pursued a course that is similar to what I think we've done with the classics, doing a whole range of different things from, you know, gags to 
narratives to the Saul Steinberg book they just did, Labyrinth, mm-hmm. which is one of a kind of magnum opus of Steinberg's, sort of following a line across the length of a book and watching that line swell and contract and turn into all the countless different things that a great artist can make a line do. So um, it's been, it's, uh, it's an important new initiative for us, right? Is there anything else that you are particularly looking forward to? I mean, I must I must say I've already circled the the new Manchette and the new Eve Babbitts. Uh, they're not new, but the the new releases from your your collection. Is there anything else you're particularly looking forward to as we get into the fall season? You know, it's very hard for me to remember what we're publishing in the fall. <laughs> that's listed in front of me. I'm usually focused on. Uh, we just published, and I think it will come out. I mean, there's there are all these lags of time, so. I get focused on getting the book out the door and forget exactly when it's going to come, and then I'm also focused on acquiring books that will be published in two or three years uh, to come. I will mention that in the fall comes the last of the books by Henry Green that we did, and we did a whole reissue of Henry Green's novels, and I think Green, this is his short stories and a wonderful interview uh, that he gave, um, and... uh, and Green is, for me, one of the one of the most wonderful uh, English novelists of the last century, as well as one of the most inventive stylists, a real adventurer uh, in the sentence and paragraph. And uh, so um, that's, that's, that concludes an important project that we've had going. Edwin, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you a quick question. I've never read Henry Green, and I've been trying to get into him. If you had to read one title, what would it be? And I'm going to pick it up this week. The one, you know, I read Green in college, and I read Loving, which is the most famous one, and I did not like it at all, though I've changed my mind. But the book that made me a convert is Back, which is about a guy back from the Second World War. Uh, he's been in a prison camp. He's lost a leg. He's basically suffered. He's traumatized, and he's come back to London, and he's suffering from hallucinations, and it's, uh, it's a beautiful and very strange love story, and it's a beautiful reckoning with uh, with... Um, with craziness, but it's a deeply, it's a profoundly humane book as well as a completely surprising book. Thanks. Huge fan of Henry Green myself. We've been speaking today with Edwin Frank. He is the editor of the New York Review of Books Classic Series. We highly recommend it. Edwin, thanks so much for spending time with us on the Sunday. Thanks, Edwin. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. We really appreciate it. We're going to close the show as we always do. We give the New York Review of Books the last word. This is a selection from Michael Walzer's Political Action, and then we're heading out. We'll see you next week with The Wild Bunch. Professional politics is overwhelmingly a man's world. In citizen politics, women play a much larger part. Indeed, they constitute a majority of the adult participants in many activities. Young activists struggling to get something started in the community find women reachable in ways that men on the job are not to them. And women with families and without jobs, in fact, have time to spare for politics, just as they have time to spare for the church, the PTA, hospital aid, and so on. Politics is not so different from these, though it is sometimes more important. So women are drawn in. They do important work and work at which they are often highly experienced. But they only rarely emerge as leaders, and they rarely make the weight of their experience and participation felt when crucial decisions are being made. The reasons for this don't have much to do with citizen politics in particular. The subordination of women, especially older women, in the new party or movement is only one more example of their position in the old society. The conventional activities that women most readily take up in the movement are those that are most seriously underpaid out of it. And the part-time work that is easiest for women with children is everywhere undervalued. And the part-time work that is easiest for women with children is everywhere undervalued, by no means peculiarly so in the movement. 
Yet in the movement as out of it, women defer to men, to young activists, political old hands, semi-professionals, and part-time leaders who meet, argue, bargain, and hand down decisions. Even when women play key managerial roles in citizen politics, they are usually excluded from the boards of directors and steering committees, which assume ultimate responsibility for movement projects. Sometimes this exclusion has a political excuse. Often, it has to be said, the women involved do not resist. Unsure of their political roles, nervous about their family commitments, lacking in self-confidence, they allow themselves to become the common laborers of the movement. There are any number of objections to be made to this situation, and the most important I leave to the women themselves. I only want to point out one consequence of their subordination for citizen politics, that is, the ephemeral character of so many amateur movements. This is caused at least partly by the way in which power in these movements gravitates towards people who are marginal to any particular local community and away from people, a very large number of them women, who have established themselves where they are and assumed local responsibilities. It is important to point out the contrast here with established political parties and labor unions, which are essentially associations of adult males rooted in their communities, supplemented and sometimes strengthened by ladies' auxiliaries. Citizen politics can rarely take that form since so many men are committed elsewhere. More important, it shouldn't take that form since one of its characteristic claims is to mobilize people who have been previously passive, unheard within the system. Women are one of its key constituencies and their degradation is its special loss. The failure of women to assume leadership positions or to participate fully in decision-making often leaves the new party or movement rootless, the ideological tool and sometimes the plaything of marginal men. is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Edwin Frank, the editorial director of the New York Review of Books Classics series. Books featured in this episode include Political Action by Michael Walzer, The Mad and the Bad by Jean-Patrick Manchette, Nigrophobia by Darius James, Sand by Wolfgang Herndorf, and Naked Earth by Eileen Chang. This episode originally aired on May 26, 2019. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.